today. It's a great pleasure to welcome Dr. Martin Ziegler from ETH Zurich to Cardiff. Uh, we were first alerted to Martin's work as he was on the front page of the Cardiff University website about a year ago or so, was it? Yeah. Something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, for his high impact research on climate change and human development in the Middle Paleolithic and before that. Um, this was published in Nature Communications. He's also got science papers, sort of journals that most of us can only dream of and some of us have no desire to dream of, admittedly. Um, <coughs> he's now, uh, soon after that, in fact, moved to Zurich on a Marie Curie Fellowship and is now about to shift into a lectureship in Utrecht, where he also did his PhD. So, as we've uh, already gone over time. I'll make a very rapid intro, and without further ado, we'll hand over to Martin. Thank okay, you. thank you, Richard. Um, thanks for the intro, and thanks for inviting me to this uh, seminar here. It's an unusual seminar for me, so I'm not an, uh, an uh, archaeologist, but I'm a geologist by training. And I was saying earlier to Richard, we kind of, as a group, work on this, stumbled into the. Uh, is that the train you want? Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, we kind of stumbled into that topic because, as uh, now, group, what we're doing is um, is paleontography, paleoclimatology. So we're doing climate reconstructions based on marine sediment cores, and we did some work offsh offshore uh, South Africa and we, we realized that there are some nice uh, links to to the archaeological records on land. So I would also like to acknowledge my uh, co-authors from that study that uh, Richard was mentioning earlier. So Professor Ian Hall, Margaret Simon, Steve Barker, they're all colleagues here at Cardiff University at the Earth and Ocean Sciences Institute and Rainer Zahn from Barcelona and Chris Stringer from the Natural History Museum. History Museum in London were also involved in this work. So yeah, as uh, as Richard said, we got a little bit of uh, um, so we had a little press release when the the study was um, published, and it was actually to our surprise uh, picked up quite well by the by the media. So the BBC had a little article on their website. And also, actually, it, within a couple of hours, it was all over the, the planet. It's funny that you kind of, within a few minutes, you're suddenly in the top stories on, on Google News next to some bombings in Iraq and uh, some other things. And then after a couple of hours, it's all something else again. But it, there was really um, media attention all over the place. NBC, there were some articles in Korea, in Vietnam. Actually, they, they, they were pretty cool. They actually had a picture of the the early humans uh, 100,000 years ago. <laughs> and the famous uh, news channel, The Catholic Online, I'm sure you all read that every morning. They, their interpretation of our study was maybe climate change isn't so bad after all. The study shows prehistoric humans benefited technologically from climate change. So what is what was all this, this about? This is what I'm going to talk about in the next uh, uh, 40 minutes or so. So uh, cultural roots, I, I think there's quite a, quite a bit of a debate where, where these cultural roots actually are, where, where, where they're located, when did kind of modern human behavior, use of symbolism and, and such occur for the first time. Well, certainly one important region in that respect is, is South Africa. 
southern part of Africa, South Africa also, yeah, some important sites in Namibia. Um, what you see here is one of these very important uh, excavation sites in um, the Blombos Cave, which is located um, here. So these sites, uh, these archaeological sites show some of the earliest evidence of modern uh, human behavior. So um, uh, the, the record there shows these uh, early abstract engravings you know, for the first time. Um, there's evidence of, sort of exotic um, materials used for certain tools, shell beads, the symbolic cultures. And all these examples are from the so-called uh, still bay industry. So what is typical for these, um, for these uh, yeah, artifacts that they occur in different industries and there was one, one study and this is actually how we got interested in this whole topic. It was a science paper that we saw when we were working in, in this area um, by Zenobia Jacobs, ages for the Millstone Age of Southern Africa, implications for human behavior and dispersal. So what Jacobs and colleague, colleagues did, they went to all these classic, or to several of these classic sites where you can find these early artifacts and they dated them uh, with the, um, the optical dating, luminescence, luminescence dating. So here's, here's the abstract of, of that store, of that uh, study. I'm just quoting from that. So they, they report ages from different size, sites in, in various climatic and ecological zones across southern Africa. What they found is that these different industries are relatively, relatively short-lived, so they occurred over a couple of thousand years, and then before the next industry occurred, there was a couple of thousand years, actually nothing in, in the record. And the timing of the, the occurrence was uh, coeval with genetic estimates of population expansion and exit times. And in particular, that last sentence that uh, has drawn the, the, our attention to the study, comparison with climatic records shows that these bursts of innovative behavior cannot be explained by environmental factors or climate change. So the conclusion was essentially based, this last conclusion was based on this, this figure. So what we see here is uh, the, are these dates of these archaeological artifacts. See they cluster in different periods and um, it's between, this is showing the time between 30 and 90,000 years ago. And what they've done then, they compared it to climatic records, in this case from Antarctica, ocean isotope records, Antarctic ice cores, which essentially represents past temperature changes. Now, they admit in the study, okay, Antarctica is not really South Africa, but since there was nothing, no proper record nearby, and the, the, the resolution and the age model of the Antarctic ice core records is quite good, that was their best guess as a kind of representative for Southern Hemisphere climate at that time. So they compared the timing of the different industries 
to the changes that occurred in Antarctica and the conclusion was there's no consistent pattern. Uh, sometimes during some in industries it seems to warm the climate, sometimes it seems to be a bit colder. There's nothing consistent and we were wondering, so since we were working in, in, in South African region, we were wondering if we could come up with something that is more local and probably shows a different fit and this. Okay, so actually what we were what we were actually after in the beginning, so this was part of a big European project and I was doing well, I was doing my part in, in Cardiff here. We have within that project we were looking at sediment cores from this so called Agulas current system. So that's the Agulas what you see here is, is basically um, an ocean model, a high resolution model that shows in the different colors the um, velocity of the ocean currents on the surface. So what you see here, this, these red colors represent this western boundary current in the southern Indian Ocean. It's kind of the uh, equivalent to the Gulf Stream that we have in the northern hemisphere in the Atlantic. <coughs> Each of the ocean basins has a strong western boundary current and we were particularly interested in this current is what you can see as soon as it hits the, uh, the um, Antarctic circumpolar current, it reflects, and again, what then what is then happening during this reflection? You see, it splits off some uh, eddies, big eddies and rings there, that then travel into the Atlantic. And this process is quite important. Um, since this is relatively salty water here on the Indian side, this splitting off of these eddies is actually exporting salt and heat into the Atlantic Ocean and is influencing the overall circulation in the Atlantic. And we wanted to study changes in the past and relate that to the overall climate evolution uh, during the last glacial cycle. So here's, here's a schematic of, uh, of the impact of this whole system. So down here we have our Gulas current. These are the rings that essentially bring salt into the Atlantic. And, and this has, in the end, an impact because essentially that salt signature travels all the way up into the North Atlantic. And it contributes to the overall circulation in the Atlantic since we have deep water formation up here. So in the Labrador Sea, east of Greenland, and in the Norwegian Sea, waters are very dense since they're cold and they're salty, and the salt signature from the lower latitudes, also from the Agulhas region. Because they're so dense, they sink, and then they're basically replaced, so they sink to the depth and flow back to the southern hemisphere. And they're replaced by warm surface water that gets to the high northern North Atlantic. And this overall means that the heat transport, the latitudinal heat transport in the Atlantic is everywhere northwards. Okay, and that has of course important implications for the climate in Europe. So imagine for that for some reason the deep the water surface waters in the North Atlantic were not dense enough anymore because they were, for example, not salty anymore. Because you would get less of this leakage into the Atlantic or you would 
put in fresh water for some other reason, increased precipitation or melting of ice sheets, you wouldn't get the formation of deep waters there anymore, and then this whole heat transport would also stop with the consequence that the northern hemisphere would get colder and the southern hemisphere would get warmer. Uh, it's debated if this could actually happen as a consequence of global warming, so that you would get melting of ice sheets in the northern hemisphere, for example Greenland, and in a long-term perspective that could actually kind of counteract global warming, at least for the northern, uh, northern Atlantic part, since you would get a cooling effect through the decreased overturning circulation. It's debatable if that could really happen in, in the, the future or not, but certainly it did happen in the past. Okay, so uh, and let's have a quick look at this. So this is, what, what do we actually do? How do we reconstruct these changes in the past? So we are working, as I said, with marine sediment cores, such as this example there on the left. So we get continuous records through the time if we're going deeper into the sediment column. We're of course going back deeper into time and you see, see these nice, nice laminations there. So if, if you're lucky and the, the sediment is undisturbed, you can even get a resolution that is annual. It's of course only very rare uh, situations where, where you have that, but you in these sediments, there's lots of information, there's microfossils, there's organic material, um, <coughs> and you can use then, for example, you know, the geochemistry of the microfossils, such as these, these foraminifera, and reconstruct sea surface temperature, salinity, based on isotopic composition, trace elements, through trace elements, and so on, through time. And then we do multi-proxy studies and try to get a good picture of what happened happened at a certain location through through time. Now this is here one one uh, very beautiful example of such a climatic record that is based on marine sediment course. So what you see here is oxygen isotope is an oxygen isotope record based on um, benthic foraminifera, so that is small uh, single-cell organisms that live at the sea floor, and the oxygen isotope composition actually is related to the oxygen isotope composition in the seawater, and that is to a large extent driven by global ice volume. So if you have a lot of ice on the in the high latitudes, you store a lot of basically O16 there in the ice because you get fractionation of the oxygen isotopes when you evaporate the water and what remains in the ocean is a tendency to higher isotopic values. So basically what you see over the last five million years here is a long-term cooling trend. And we get overall more ice on the planet. It's getting colder and colder and what you also see is an increase in variability. Climate is getting unstable and that is probably because of these big ice sheets because once you have ice sheet the whole thing is yeah there's less stability you can get quick melting and quick relatively quick growth of these uh, big ice sheets. So the variability in fact if you would look close at this here so this is basically small glacial interglacial cycles um, here it's essentially 40, around 40,000 year cycles. That is driven by changes 
cyclic changes in the orbit of the Earth around the Sun, causing changes in the radiation, and then <coughs> when we're going to the later part, we get ice age cycles of 100,000 years when the, when the ice ages become really big. Um, so just for comparison, I've plotted in here the kind of rough times when, when Homo habilis appeared first stone to somewhere, I don't know, 2.5 million years ago, and then it took a long time until Homo sapiens came around, and then it actually relatively quickly had an increase in well, techniques and, and yeah, actually also the, saw for the first time this kind of uh, symbolic um, industries that I've, that I've talked about in the beginning. So rapid change there in innovation and so on. So if we go into these cycles, into these ice, ice age cycles, and look at, at details, in more detail at climate variability there, what we see is, so this is now the last glacial cycle. And if you look in detail at the uh, climate variability there, we see also that there was an occurrence of this, what we call millennial scale climate variability. So this year again is an oxygen isotope record of Arctica. That was in the, in the first slide in the Jacobs paper, if you remember that one. CSEPs, uh, temperature variability in Antarctica. And here is its northern hemisphere counterpart. This is an oxygen isotope record in, in Greenland that also shows abrupt variability, but the overall pattern is slightly different. Um, first of all, it's kind of anti-phased, you know, essentially when, when it's getting very cold in Greenland, it's warming up in Antarctica, and, and the pattern of all is, is more rapid, and there's deeper transitions from cold into warm stages the other way around. So the reason for this, is, we think, is changes in ocean circulation. If you remember what I said before, this the overturning circulation is essentially transporting heat from the southern hemisphere into the northern hemisphere in the Atlantic. Now if that would stop that process, you would get a cooling in the northern hemisphere and you would warm the southern hemisphere. And this is exactly what we see in these records. And we're talking about what well, we name this the, the bipolar seesaw behavior of millennial scale climate change. And yeah, as I said before, that maybe this Agulhas current, Agulhas leakage also played a role here because that could be one of the driving mechanisms how you get switches in the overturning circulation if you, for example, close this gateway here and op reopen it again. Okay, so we were studying, studying that region uh, in different sediment cores. Here's one example um, of, of another study we did. We had we looked here at a record close to uh, South Africa and one that is more to the south in the Southern Ocean. And this is just an example. I don't want to to go into the into the details here. But so again, here this is now a slightly older time interval. This is actually an ultimate glacial cycle. But in principle, we we observe the same thing. So in Antarctica rapid climate variability during the last glacial 
And around South Africa, we see big responses in sea surface temperature and also up here, that's basically a recon reconstruction of sea surface salinity. Um, based in this case on geochemistry in, in foraminifera that we picked out of our sediment course. Here, this is a record of ice rafted debris close to, to um, South Africa. So basically, that's remains, that is uh, traces of sand grains that were transported by icebergs um, relatively close to the coast of South Africa. So today, you would never get icebergs there. Um, but since the whole fronts in the southern, southern Ocean shifted during the glaciers, you had these short periods of you know, very abrupt cooling there. So all I want to show here is basically that also the oceans, also around South Africa, responded very sensitively to these millennial scale climate variability. Um, so this is now just another example from another region to show that so we, we care about these abrupt climate changes for a couple of reasons. First of all, if you look at Greenland, the amplitude of these millennial scale warmings is on the order of 15 degrees annual average. So it's a huge amplitude, huge warming within a couple of years to decades. So it's fast, it's, um, it's big amplitude, and it has effects on the whole globe. And I was last year actually on a cruise in, in the Sea of Japan where we drilled very long records. And this is, this is just an example of what we got there. Actually, the next week we will start sampling those, those cores and really start working on them. But what we found there in, in the Sea of Japan is in the sediments, these dark light layers. Sedimentation rate is probably something like five to six centimeters per thousand years. And this example here is the last, what you see on the table here, is basically core sections, one meter core sections from a core that is covering the last uh, glacial cycle. And all these dark layers here represent warm periods in Greenland again. We have some initial uh, age models that kind of uh, support that. And, and the, the sediments or the sediment color the Sea of Japan is closely related to the activity of the uh, East Asian monsoon. So what we, what we see in not only the Sea of Japan but all around Asia essentially is also high sensitivity to these millennial scale climate changes. Basically every time Greenland is getting warmer during the glacier we have an intensified monsoon that is impacting on the circulation pattern in the Sea of Japan. I don't need to go into the details here, but basically, because of a change in the circulation, we get more organic matter in the sediments. And that's why we have these dark layers. And every time Greenland is getting very cold, we have a very strong winter monsoon, a weaker summer monsoon, and we get these very light uh, sediments there. So you see it all over the planet, this kind of millennial scale climate pattern. Here's another example, this time from northern Africa, uh, not South Africa. Again, I hope by now you're a little bit familiar with these records. Again, here's Greenland, last glacial cycle, our large amplitude millennial scale climate change. Here's Antarctica, um, again, uh, the lower core. And what's 
these guys did here, they looked at a at a sediment record that's offshore um, northwestern Africa, and they, they simply looked at the elemental composition in the sediment core over this time interval. And what they find is big changes in the aluminium silicon composition there, also iron potassium composition, and that's related basically to weathering patterns on land and the difference between fluvial and uh, uh, aeolian um, material. So essentially if we get a low iron-potassium um, ratio in the sediment at these times that's an indicator for a relatively dry climate. A high ratio would indicate relatively arid, uh, uh, humid climate. You see that again these extreme periods in the Sahel region correspond to the cold events in, in Greenland. So essentially if you get a very cold northern hemisphere that pushes out precipitation of the, of the northern hemisphere. Now this is now a compilation of, of different records. So this is basically what is happening when you get one of these northern hemisphere cold events. All the red dots indicate drying of the climate, and the blue um, dots indicate wetter climate in the proxy record. And the overall pattern is consistent with the idea that the intertropical convergence zone, so this is our monsoonal rain belt, is shifting on average towards the southern hemisphere. And since most of the monsoon is happening nowadays in the northern hemisphere, actually most of the areas get very dry. South, South America is getting a bit wetter. And it also seems that the southern part of Africa is getting a little bit wetter during these very cold periods in the northern hemisphere. So uh, this is just a, basically the same compilation with, with more data points for the latest, for the last cold period that the Earth experienced, the last North Atlantic cold event during the last deglaciation. Well, basically, they were, in this study they were talking about a mega drought that was covering large, large parts of, of Asia and most of Africa as well, with the exception of South Africa. So we, uh, we were studying um, also a, uh, a sediment core in the Agulhas current region, and since it was nicely located offshore the Great Kai River, we could also do reconstructions of past terrestrial climate variability through essentially reconstructing fluvial discharge that came out of that river. And you see already in this picture here a beautiful reddish brownish color. There's lots of sediments in these in these so-called brown rivers. Here you see it again you see this nice sediment plume coming out of the river. It's like a red, reddish uh, stream going through the landscape there and um, okay yeah this is our, our tool so basically what we've done uh, we took these the sediment core and put them into one of these XRF scanners so x-ray fluorescent scanners that gives us an indication of the elemental composition and relatively high resolution and that's how we can scan through such a record sub-centimeter scale and get a very high resolution climate reconstruction based on that. 
So these were our results. Um, okay, again up here again is Antarctica. Um, temperature variability in the southern hemisphere. Now this green panel here is another monsoonal record um, from Asia, which is looking pretty much like Greenland. I talked about that before, so it's a spiliothene record, ocean isotope record in, in spiliothemes, so cave calcite. And the isotopic composition in spiliothemes is also related to um, monsoonal uh, precipitation. So basically when we get heavier values that indicates less summer monsoon uh, in this location in, in, in China, and lighter values indicate a stronger <coughs> monsoonal um, yeah, precipitation signal. Now, what we found is in our sort of river runoff record, so this is plotted down here, is that now I've shown, I've shown in the Sahel um, this record of uh, Northwest Africa, I've shown that before. The if you remember that they also looked at the iron-potassium ratios and what they found is relatively low iron-potassium ratios during these cold events, northern Africa. What we find is during these cold events or weak northern hemisphere summer monsoon events the relatively high iron-potassium values. So <coughs> these peaks actually indicate wetter conditions in South Africa. <coughs> Um, so again, also in precipitation, we have this kind of bipolarity, bipolar seesaw. Now what's great about these spirit-themes, you basically use their age model and say, okay, this is my ideal template of the timing of these events. You have very good age constraints because these spirit-themes can be dated using uranium-thorium, uh, using the uranium-thorium uh, that's very accurate. That's more accurate than we can get in most of the marine records. So we have very well-constrained timings of these events. And we say, OK, um, we use those timings also for our record, um, basically to, to date the occurrence of these, the exact occurrence of these events. Um, and I mean, that's. It's, it's fascinating. This is, of course, always fascinating to see if you start working on a new sediment record and you're trying to find a certain pattern in there and you actually see a match between a speleothene record in China and an elemental ratio record in, in South Africa, basically on the other side of the world, and they're basically behaving in, in very similar ways, just the opposite signal. So see that again here? It's, uh, this is actually another record that we started to work on recently. Beautif beautiful match between the two. So every time, essentially, Northern Hemisphere is getting wet, Southern Hemisphere or South Africa is getting dry and the other way around. Uh, this is also consistent with, uh, with climate modeling, essentially. So what you can do in, in climate models, you can and artificially reproduce these cooling events. You just throw a lot of fresh water into the North Atlantic. And what you see is happening um, 
that this is the, the precipitation response in such a hosing experiment. So these red, reddish colors indicate drier conditions. When you cool the northern hemisphere, the blue colors indicate a, a, um, the opposite uh, signal. So it's actually evaporation minus precipitation. So it's more evaporation in large parts of Africa. And here's a slight precipitation increase in the southern part of Africa. And it's just another um, modeling experiment showing the same result, but then on a more global scale. And you see large parts of the globe during such a, a cooling event in the North Atlantic get drier, with the exception of essentially South America. And they are also southern part of Africa. OK, to, just to conclude that part now, okay, we have a pretty consistent pattern there. We have this glacial bipolar seesaw associated with the warming of the South Atlantic, southward shift of the frontal systems in the South Atlantic and, and in the uh, Southern Ocean. And the so-called intertropical convergence zones are precipitation band in the low latitudes shifts southwards as well. Now these conditions led to humid passes in South Africa and to essentially dry conditions over the rest of, of the African continent. Now how did that now influence at all human evolution or the occurrence of the these cultural events. Now, I've, I'll come back to the beginning now. We summarize all that and do the same comparison that Jacobs and colleagues did in the beginning. We see that the occurrence of their cultural periods and dates fit actually very nicely into that pattern. So all of this is now on this Spelia theme, uranium thorium date time scale, and then the independent ages up there using the uh, luminescence dates in the South African caves. And you see they beautifully fit into Greenland cold events. So northern hemisphere drying in the monsoon region and wetter conditions um, in South Africa. So what, what that means, I mean, that is uh, now open to debate, of course. Why do we have the events when South Africa is getting better? So we probably have environmentally um, yeah, favorable conditions for these early humans. Why did they start using, or why did cultural behavior come along with that? So that's probably also related to the fact that most of the rest of Africa got very dry. So in fact, the whole population size was probably very small. That is also what genetic evidence suggests. So you had a small community in a relatively small refugium under positive or favorable environmental conditions. And all, all of that together helped to kind of quickly, you know, basically um, yeah, exchange new ideas and and make them really successful in the whole population. Okay, so just to, to sum this up and continue there, so this potentially contributed to the creation of a refugium 
favorable environmental conditions for early human cultures. So that could imply that these innovational pulses of early modern human behavior were climatically influenced and linked to the adoption of new refugia, which potentially required uh, adaptive change, but also subsequently provided favorable conditions for population growth. And this is supported, this idea is supported by some models that link such pulses with changes in demography. Thanks for the attention.